name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Many of you know that October 4th is the official St. Francis Day, and that it's the custom of this parish to celebrate St. Francis Day the, the next Sunday. And so that explains a lot of the animal companions who are around you. If you're a bit allergic or want a cushion, please find those seats that are so marked. Um, when people think of St. Francis of Assisi, often they think of his love for animals, his, his preaching to the birds, his taming of a wolf, or they, pre, they think of the famous prayer associated with him. It's a prayer that's actually in the Book of Common Prayer in the back on page 833. Um, in good Episcopal style, they hedge a little bit and they name it the prayer attributed to St. Francis of Assisi because no one's exactly sure if he wrote it exactly like that or not. But you probably are familiar with the famous prayer. It begins, Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Given the last couple of weeks in our country, in our lives, maybe we should just stop there and that be our prayer. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. But the prayer keeps on going and it gets better in many ways. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. The prayer seems to suggest that to be instruments of peace has to do with our making an effort to reconcile opposites. These things that on first blush seem diametrically opposed. Hatred and love, injury, pardon, discord, union, doubt, faith, despair, hope, darkness, light, sadness, joy. We could add a list of dualities. Male, female, masculine, feminine, all other sorts of qualities. But the point, I think, in this prayer, the, the genius of St. Francis suggested through this prayer, is that in God's love there exists a kind of peace in which duality is dissolved. In its place is shalom, integrity, unity, wholeness, and deep, everlasting peace. It's the lack of this peace, this peaceful unity, that causes the disharmony we hear about in today's scriptures. In the gospel, it begins with the religious leaders coming to Jesus, trying to trick Jesus in some letter of the law. They ask him about some minor detail about divorce to test Jesus' knowledge of the Hebrew laws. But Jesus responds by talking about marriage. He's more interested in what the relationship could be, might be, as God intends, that God intends the two to be one. Jesus then reminds them that the provision for divorce is because of human fallibility. Jesus also suggests that the law allowing for divorce is not there to encourage divorce, but as a necessity when there's no other alternative. 
Jesus underscores, God gave the law of Moses out of compassion, not because God knew that people would get in trouble, but because God understood that sometimes people harm each other and there needed to be a provision to deal with broken relations. Sometimes a marriage needs to end. And so the law of Moses and others are provided for those situations. But this doesn't settle the matter matter for Jesus' disciples. Notice what happens. They want to continue the conversation. And so the group leaves the Pharisees, the professionally religious, and they go indoors. And the disciples push Jesus further. They want to be clear what Jesus really thinks about divorce. Probably because they're not in agreement about what they think about divorce. And so Jesus answers by interpreting the religious law of his day. Or so it seems. This is where a little bit of Bible study comes in handy now and then. (laughs) Because what Jesus says in Mark's gospel is not what the law was during Jesus' day. It's what the law was during Mark's day. So already, by the time of the writing of the gospel, the religious teaching on divorce has changed a little bit according to communal standards and the mores of the day. You see, in Jesus' day, there was no provision for a woman to divorce her husband, but that comes later in Mark's community. And so by Mark's time, that's a reality. And faith has begun to grapple with those places in which scripture and tradition and reason don't always line up. And so we pray ever more deeply for help from the Holy Spirit. And so if we look closely, we can see in the New Testament itself, already there is a progression, a change, a growth in interpretation of where God is in human relations. It's the close reading of scripture and the acceptance of such a theological progression that allows the Episcopal Church to understand divorce and to invite people to move forward afterwards and continues to evolve with an understanding of marriage, including any two people in love wanting to pledge that love in a community of faith, regardless of their gender. Beliefs and customs change over time. We don't insist on second century dentistry or health care. Why would we suggest second century interpretations of scripture? We've moved on with the roles of women, with the roles of children, as Jesus begins by lifting a little child up in the midst of a culture that put children down. And so we've continued to follow in his way and elevate the role of all those Jesus pulled out and pushed forward. The scriptures seem to talk about marriage a bit this morning, about committed relationships. And even though the church has sometimes privileged married persons over those who are not married, the epistle reading from Hebrews really reminds us that God's image is not best reflected even in marriage, but Christ is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And Christ sustains all things. So Christ is the model for us. In him we unite all that we are, husband, wife, spouse, and spouse, female and male, all come in union in Christ. When the disciples ask Jesus about marriage, Jesus responds with Genesis 2, in which male and female are helpers, partners, and part of each other. 
The union of male and female in Christ is something the saints have aimed for. And it's precisely this blending of male and female in a graceful and loving way that shows up in people like Francis of Assisi. Describing Francis, the liberation theologian Leonardo Boff writes, In Francis, the feminine and masculine come together in such a way that he carries a bit of each. The male integrates the anima that gives him strength, that is the dimension of gentleness, of care, of attraction, of intuition, of all that is linked to the mystery of life and generation. The female must integrate the animus that is found within her existence, that is the objectivity of the world, the rationality, the ordering, the direction. And so in Francis of Assisi and the hope for all of us, Without machismo or feminism, without fragility or rigidity, there blossoms harmoniously a gentle strength and a strong gentleness that are the brilliance and the archetypal enchantment of a holy personality. A gentle strength and a strong gentleness. What a good thing we would hope to attain for ourselves. What a, what a holy thing we would wish on Peter, who's about to be baptized. What an exceptional thing in a culture that continues to accentuate the extremes of what some think is male and manliness and what some thinks are are ladiness and femininity. Christ mixes all of that up in a glorious mixture that invites us to be part of that unity. Whether single, married, in relationship, or out, God wants to fill us with that same spirit that Francis has with all of creation, uniting him with with brothers and sisters who may be animals, who may be trees, who may be other human beings, and so that we with all creation might sing God's praises in the words of Francis, Praised be you, my Lord, through those who give pardon for your love and bear infirmity and tribulation. Blessed are those who endure in peace. For by you, Most High, shall they be crowned. Blessed are we who work and live toward peace. For we will be crowned in Christ's spirit and glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.